All right, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. If you are new with us, thank you again for being here. But if you're not new with us, you know we've been in this series that we've entitled Savior, really looking at the last week of Jesus' ministry on this earth before he goes to the cross. And when we look at that last week, we started, if you remember, with the triumphal entry as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, knowing what God has called him to do, knowing that he's fixed his eyes on Jerusalem, as Luke says, and he's now going into that city, knowing that it is going to lead to where we will look today in our passage of Scripture. And oftentimes, today is referred to as Palm Sunday, and even though we're not looking at the triumphal passage this morning, we did look at it five weeks ago when we started this series. And then if you remember, we then found ourselves and we journeyed with Jesus to the upper room in John 13 where Jesus there really displays what humility looks like as he washes the disciples' feet knowing that within hours he will be going to the cross. And then we went and journeyed with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus pours his heart out to his heavenly Father really showing us what it looks like to submit to the will of the Father even when it's difficult. And then last week, if you were here with us, We journeyed with Jesus and now he stands before Pilate and he's falsely accused and what it looks like for Jesus to endure those accusations and to endure that animosity and to endure that apathy that's represented by the religious leaders and even Pilate himself. And now that leads us to the passage of scripture that we are going to look at today. But before we read it, I want to take some time just for us to think about this subject of love. Like, let's just, let's just take a moment and let's think about it. Let's think about that word, love. Because if we were honest in our culture today, wouldn't we say that that, that, that word is, has so many different meanings, has so many different ideas, has so many different connotations, and really because of that word having so many definitions and meanings and ideas, it's oftentimes really twisted in how we view that word love. Like, don't we use it interchangeably for so many things? Like, how many of you have pets this morning? Raise your hand. Uh, So the majority of the people in the room have, have pets. And so if I asked you today about your dog or about your cat, you might even utter the words, man, I love my dog or I love my cat. Cat people in the room? Yeah, I knew there wasn't many. Um... But those of you who are here are strong and you're together and you love your cat, right? Here's what I found interesting. I've never, when I've looked for a card to give my wife on Valentine's Day or maybe another, and if I'm really like being an amazing husband, I'll actually get a card that talks about love outside of one time a year. And, and have you ever walked into a card store or into a convenience store or whatever it is and you're looking at those cards? I think you would agree with me that you've never found a card that literally says, I love you like I love my dog, or I love my cat. I've never, I've never found one. Some of you would say, I love my dog more than I love anybody else. But we use that word, love, for our animals, and in turn, we use that word, love, like hopefully if you're married this morning, you would say, I love my husband or I love my wife. And so we use that same word. Some of us might say, man, I love my job, or I love my car, or I moved into a brand new house, and I love my house. 
You might say, I love a good steak. And so we use the same word love for something that we eat in the same way that we use it for our spouse, in the same way that we use it for our things, in the same way that we use it for the animals that we may have. And so we use that word so interchangeably that if we're not careful, it loses its meaning. It loses its significance. It loses its substance and in depth. And depth. And so what does that word literally mean when we look in the scriptures and we see the word love mentioned, the type of love that we're going to see today that Jesus demonstrated for us by dying on the cross for our sins, the type of love that we read about that's written by the disciples in the epistles, that type of love. So here's the definition of love that I want to give you. Before we get into this passage of scripture, it's this. Love is more than a feeling that happens to you. It's more than that. It is a choice to seek the well-being of someone other than yourself, here's key, without expecting anything in return. That's love. That's the biblical definition of love. That's the love that Jesus demonstrated. That's the love that we are to demonstrate to others. It's more than something, a feeling that happens to you. It's more than that. More than that. We've gotten caught up in our culture to think that that's all it is. It's a feeling. No, no, no. It's a choice. A choice for what? A choice to seek the well-being of someone other than yourself without expecting anything in return. Let me give you an example. How many of you are in a relationship today? Raise your hand. So you better be raising your hand if you're in a relationship. Okay, that's the majority of us in this room. If you're not, that's okay, because Helen said an awesome phrase. Rejection is what? Protection. Like, I love that phrase. Uh, But if you're in a relationship today, then you may be at a point, not all of you, if you're dating, you may not be there, but if you're a husband and wife, you should be at the point where you've already told each other that you love them. So let's think about that definition. So as I was thinking about this definition, I thought of myself, when when was the first time that I told Lori, my wife, that I loved her? So it was Valentine's Day of 1998, so over 20 years ago, which that's hard to believe, but 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, 21 years ago. And so I remember being so nervous. Do you remember that time? Like, like as I'm sharing, you identify with me. Remember that time when you were like, man, I, I found this person and I've gone from liking them to now I really believe that I love them. And you're thinking about, I want to tell them that I love them. But do you remember the nervousness that was there? Because it was like, if I tell them that I love them, then what was the fear? Are they going to say it back? Remember that? Like I was sharing this at first service and it was so interesting because some people were telling me their story. Do you remember that? Like the fear of if I say, I love you, am I gonna get back? Thank you. (laughs) Right, like what do you say to that if you can't say it back? What could I possibly say to make that situation less awkward? The answer is nothing. But we're all fearful of that, that that's going to be our story. And of course, after the 9 a.m., I got some great stories. 
Like I got one story of this one couple that will remain nameless that literally he said it in the service to his girl that he loved. And she literally rested her hand on her shoulder and said, thank you, I'm not there yet. (laughs) Can you imagine? They're married today. But that's a big fear, right? But think about it, what gets you past that fear? And for me, I remember I, I wrote this poem and at the end it said, I love you and I wrapped it up and I gave it to Lori and she unwrapped it and inside I'm like, man, I hope, like I love you but I hope you say it back. She did, by the way, but nevertheless, you're nervous about that, right? But what, where are you at when you say that word? You're at a place where I want to tell this person so much that I love them that even if they don't say it back, I'm willing to take that risk. But even when I look back 21 years ago and I look at that young guy who didn't have a clue, as much as I thought I understood love, I really didn't. And I knew it was more than a feeling, but at that point, there still was, like there still was that feeling. You know what I'm talking about. Or when you're getting married to someone and you're standing there and you're holding hand in hand and you're looking at their eyes back and forth and you're like there and you're saying your vows and you're telling each other that you love them for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, most of the time poorer, right? For richer or for poorer and you're saying all those words till death do us part. What are you actually saying? You're saying this definition, love is more than a feeling that happens to you. It's a choice to seek the well-being of someone other than yourself without expecting anything in return. But still, you don't have a clue. I mean, I sit down with couples in premarital counseling and you're trying to explain how love is more than a feeling and they're all just sit there, (laughs) right? Like they're just overwhelmed. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're gonna have problems. Absolutely, we're gonna have problems. And I, I seriously, I think we need to have six weeks of counseling after you're married rather than before you're married. But nevertheless, you know you've been there. Because at some point, guess what? The feeling, not in a bad way, but those goo-goo feelings that are inside when you first find someone, you first tell them, they, they will wane at points in your life. Like when you go through hard things, when you're tired of doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, And so the reason why I take time before we get into this passage of Scripture to remind ourselves of what true love is because of this. That the greatest symbol of true love that we have is not the poem that you wrote to your wife or your husband to tell them that you love them. It's not the card that you bought. It's not even what hopefully you said to them this morning that when you woke up or before you came to church, the greatest symbol of true love is the Savior's cross. It's the greatest symbol. Nothing communicates more, this definition, this biblical definition of what love is, more than what Jesus Christ has done for you and me. Nothing. And so before we read Mark 15, verses 22 through 39, I think we need to stop and we need to answer this question, why did Jesus have to die? Like, I think most people in our region of the country for sure would say they're familiar with Jesus and the cross. But why did that have to take place? 
And here's why, and we're going to see that throughout this passage of Scripture, because you and I aren't perfect. We are sinful people, and God is holy. God is perfect. And because I'm sinful and God is perfect, and because sin began all the way at the beginning of time and therefore passed on to us by one person's sin, therefore we are all sinners. So just like sin was passed on to us through one person, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, had to come and live perfection and die on the cross and be risen again three days later so that you and I could experience the love of Christ in us so that we could have a relationship with God. Here's why I say that. Romans 5.17 says this, because of one man's trespass or sin, death reigned through that one man. That's what I just said. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, Christ's righteousness, will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So what one man did to pass on sin to all of us, Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again so that through one man, we would all have the opportunity to have a relationship with the Lord. And our Savior did it willingly. He wasn't forced to do it. John 10, 17 and 18 says this, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. It's such a great passage of scripture. Like Jesus is just like dropping the mic. Like that's a, that's a like, let me just let you know that what I'm about to endure that's coming is because I'm allowing it to happen. It's a willing choice. But what do we say about that definition? It, love is expecting nothing in return. Like you and me, we had nothing to offer God that was of worth. 1 John 4.10 says this, in this is love, like here is love. You can hear our definition in this passage. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment for our sins. What was the payment? His perfect life, his death, and resurrection. So as we look at this passage of scripture that now we're going to read, and we've looked at what true love is, and how the greatest symbol of that is the Savior's cross, I want to give you three characteristics of true love that are demonstrated by Jesus in this passage. So let's start in verse 22. Look at what it says. It says, and they compelled a passerby. So Jesus, in this account, is already on the road to the cross. He's walking that road after he's been beaten. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the follower of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross, his cross being Jesus. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, as the passage that we looked at last week with Jesus on trial... The same applies here. This passage of Scripture is mentioned in Matthew, and it's mentioned in Luke, and it's mentioned in John. Obviously, we're reading it from Mark. And so all, all these accounts share a little bit different light on what happens during Jesus' crucifixion. But in this passage of Scripture, we have this where this, this 
concoction is presented to Jesus. What they would have done is they would have put that on a long pole with a sponge and they would have dipped it in this narcotic or this painkiller, this mixture, and they would have raised it up to the cross and they would have put that sponge on the criminal's mouth and he would have sucked that sponge, sucking in those fluids that would have been a painkiller to ease the pain of what was taking place on the cross. But notice it says in this verse that Jesus didn't take it, which I think is such a symbolic idea idea that the reason why that Jesus did not take something to ease the pain is because he knew he needed to endure the full weight of what needed to be accomplished for you and me. He went all the way. He loved us all the way. And so he doesn't take that, which would have been common during this day. In verse 24, and it says, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, the soldiers casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And what you need to understand is this is not something that was only reserved for Jesus's things. This is something that the Roman centurions did for all criminals on the cross. They would have taken their stuff, whatever little that they had, they would have made a little game of it. Whoever won the game got to keep the criminal's things. Look at what it says in verse 25. And it was the third hour, the third hour being 9 a.m. in the morning when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. So once again, what they would do with criminals is they would oftentimes put something around their neck that would describe what they were guilty of. Now here we have Pilate doing this in a mocking way of Jesus Trust me, Pilate is not saying he believes that Jesus is king of the Jews. This is a th thing that is to be done facetiously. Verse 27, and with him they crucified the two robbers, and on the right hand and one on his left, and those who passed by derided or mocked him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? So they're mocking what Jesus would have said that's found in John 2, verse 19, where Jesus says, tear down this temple and in three days I will raise it up. We know Jesus was speaking about his body, but nevertheless, they're using his words against him. Verse 30, they say, save yourself and come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests and the scribes, they mocked to him one another saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ King of Israel come down from the cross that he may, that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him, speaking to the two robbers on either side. Now we know in Luke 23 that we have the dialogue of these two criminals. One obviously criticizing and mocking Jesus, but the other one coming to understand who Jesus is and Jesus promising that because he believes in who he is, that he will be with Jesus when he dies. Here's the first characteristic I see in these verses is this, true love is willing to look foolish for the good of another. Like, let's not forget that it's the creator of the universe that's on this cross for you and me. And the mocking and the abuse that he is experiencing, not just before the cross, but now while he's on the cross. And how foolish he obviously looked to those that did not believe him. You're like, well, how did Jesus look foolish for me? Well, let's just, let's just mention these quickly. Think about this. What little Jesus had was taken from him. 
Like we know that Jesus did not have a home that he lived in consistently. We know that in the Gospels it says that Jesus did not have a place to lay his head. And so Jesus did not have a home that he went to day after day after having a long day. He was obviously a nomad. He traveled from place to place and, and he did that with his disciples. And so what little Jesus had was being used to basically gamble with so that one could gain the robe of someone who they obviously saw was insane. And so Jesus obviously looked foolish. But not only that, not just he looked foolish for what he had taken from him. Think about this, he was also exposed. See, we have these pictures that are often in our memory when we read this passage of scripture where Jesus is hanging there and maybe he has a little bit of a wince of pain, but he's hanging there on the cross and he has some sort of garment around his waist. But you need to understand that they hung criminals, they took everything from them and they were completely naked on the cross, completely exposed. Nothing between them and the crowds that watched. Jesus was completely exposed on this cross, the God of the universe for me and for you. How else was he looked? As foolish. His words were used against him. You see that in verse 26? He has this name over the top of him that says King of the Jews, not because they believed it, because they were mocking him. His words were used against him. And not only were his words used against him, but another way he looked foolish is look at verse 31. The chief priests and the scribes mocked him. And he saved others, he can't save himself. Not only were his words used against him, but his deeds. His deeds and what he did and the good that he did and the good that he accomplished. His deeds were misunderstood. Now let's think about all those ways just in these verses of 22 through 32 that he was mocked and made to look foolish as he hung on that cross for you. And I wonder if you're experiencing any of those things. Oh, not even near the magnitude. We wouldn't even say it in the same breath as what Jesus endured. But I wonder if things are happening to you right now and you're feeling foolish. Feeling foolish. You're like, man, what little I have. What little that I'm, what little I have and what I'm trying to do, man, it feels like that's being taken from me. Man, in this situation, I feel completely exposed. Man, everything in me wants to hide and to isolate myself, but I feel completely exposed and emotionally naked in this situation. Like I've tried to show true love and this is the way that I feel. Maybe your words are being taken the wrong way, just like Jesus' word. Maybe your deeds are being misunderstood, whatever it is. And I wonder if you're struggling today. You're saying to yourself, I'm ready to give up on showing that true definition of love to anyone in my life anymore. 
or you're even struggling to love the Lord the way that you need to because you are feeling this. But I want us to stop, and before we hit the eject button, and before we say to ourselves, I'm never gonna love the way that the Lord wants me to love, we need to stop and we need to say, wait a minute, let me look at the cross and let me understand that Jesus allowed himself to look foolish for my ultimate good. And so whatever it is that I'm experiencing today, let me also see it as a way that the Lord is trying to grow in me in a deeper way what it looks like to love like Jesus and to love Jesus in a greater way. Here's the second characteristic, and it's found in verses 33 through 36. Look at what it says. And it says, and when it was the sixth hour, so now we've three hours later, now it's high noon, had come. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So for three hours, complete darkness. Obviously, we would say that at 12 noon and 3 p.m. is not when you should be experiencing darkness. Like if that happened today, we would be like, what is going on right now? So here's what you need to understand is back then during this time, during this time period, when there was a solar eclipse, people freaked out because they didn't understand what was happening. They didn't understand scientifically what was going on. And that was only for minutes. Just imagine what the crowd was experiencing as Jesus now hung on this cross for three hours and all of a sudden the sky goes completely dark, which is interesting because obviously you had many Jews that would have been watching this crucifixion take place. Many of them obviously were mocking Jesus because Jesus hung on that cross. But you know what they were very familiar with? They were very familiar with the story of the 10 plagues in Egypt. Because after all, this was Passover time, and Passover was a time to celebrate God rescuing Israel from Egyptian captivity. What led to that? What led to that were the 10 plagues that God, God brought on Egypt. And the ninth plague was darkness, complete darkness. And I wonder if that rang a bell with any of the Jews. Because then you think about it, what was the 10th plague? The 10th plague was is that every person, firstborn son, who did not put blood on the doorposts of their home lost their firstborn male son. Now, Jesus was not God's firstborn like you may have a firstborn, but he's referred to as that, as someone that was special. Think of the most well-known verse in all the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son. So this darkness that existed for three hours was yet another picture that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has come. And he has come to save you and me from the darkness that exists in every one of our lives, that darkness being sin. Now look at verse 34. And it says that at the ninth hour, so now we're at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, Jesus cried with a loud voice. Just think about this. Six hours on the cross. He cries with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus cry that out? Because for the first and only time, 
in all of eternity past and will be all, true of all eternity future. The Godhead is separated because God cannot look on sin. And do you remember the cup that we looked at that Jesus said, God, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. That cup was God's wrath. That cup was God's judgment for your sin and my sin. So literally in this moment, all of the sin of all of mankind, past, present, and future, your sins that you committed in the past, your sins that you hope not to do but you may do today, the sins that you will commit in the future even though you don't desire to. Every person's sins, past, present, and future, are now laid upon the Son of God. He is the sacrifice for all of humanity's sin, past, present, and future. And that is literally poured out on him in this moment. And because God is holy, and Jesus has now become sin for you and me, he has to turn his back on his son. And the reason why Jesus cries out this is because he has been separated from what he has always known to exist. It's so much more painful than the whippings and the beatings and the cross carrying and the nails in his hands and feet. And him for six hours being in agony as he pushes himself up and down on his back that's already open. Wondering every time when he can breathe his last breath. See this point where Jesus cries out because he's been separated from God because now he has your sin and my sin, the worst of my sins, poured out on him. And he became sin for us. That is the most painful part of this crucifixion for our Lord and Savior. And look at verse 35. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Here's a second characteristic of true love that our Savior demonstrates. True love is willing to endure what is painful for the good of another. It's willing to endure what's painful. See, true love, the type of love that we define, let me say it again, the choice to seek the well-being of someone other than yourself without expecting anything in return, that love, the love that you're supposed to have for your husband or your wife, the love that you're supposed to have for your kids, the love that you're supposed to have in all of your relationships, the love that you're supposed to have with people that even seem unlovable, that type of love, true love, will always bring physical and emotional pain. It always will. There's no shortcuts to true love. Because true love is about enduring with someone. True love is about investing your life for someone. And can't you see that's what Jesus did for you in this passage? See, I love John 13. We read it a few weeks ago when we looked at the upper room passage. In John 13, 1, it leads us into that passage of Jesus with his disciples and him washing their feet. It says that he loved his own to the end. 
He loved his own to the end. True love costs you something. Costs you something. And when there are times where I don't want to endure the pain, and where there are times where I want to turn my back, and there are times where I want to say enough is enough, I remind myself of what Jesus endured for me, and I said, wait a minute, true love is about enduring pain for the good of another. Didn't Jesus do that for me? Here's the last characteristic, and we'll be done, and it's found in verses 37 through 39. Let's finish out this passage. It says in verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry. It doesn't say here in Mark 15 what that loud cry is, but in John 19, verse 30, tells us what that cry is. It's the greatest three words that illustrate love. And what are they? Say them with me. It is finished. Luke 23, verse 46, gives us more color into what Jesus says, where Jesus says, before he says those three words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, which just again illustrates what Jesus said in John 10, 10, that he lays his life down willingly, that Jesus didn't suffocate to death. Jesus didn't die when they pierced, when they took that spear and pierced it in his side. Jesus died because he said, it's done. He's the one that says, it is finished. He's the one that said, I've done what has been required of my God before time, that the sacrifice of another had to happen so that my people whom I love could be in relationship with me once again. Verse 38, what happens? And it says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So let's just take a moment because this is like my favorite verse in this account. The curtain of the temple So the temple was where the people would worship. The temple was where the people were worshiping during this time, the time of the Passover. And if you are familiar with the way that the temple was laid out, and though I can't get into specifics because of time, there was the Holy of Holies. That was a place that the high priest would go in once a year. And he would take the blood of a spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish, symbolizing the perfection that was needed by God Almighty to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And once a year, that high priest would go and he would take the blood of that lamb and he would sprinkle it in the Holy of Holies on the Ark of the Covenant. Now, at this time, the Ark of the Covenant was gone, but nevertheless, the high priest would sprinkle that blood, symbolizing that a covering had happened for the sins of all the people. But before you walked into this Holy of Holies, there was this curtain, and this curtain symbolized the separation of a holy God from sinful man. And only once a year, the high priest could only go in there. One time, not two times. Two times, the high priest is being buried. One time. But here's what's amazing about that curtain is the Mishnah, which is the oral tradition of the law. Here's what the Mishnah says about this curtain because you don't find it here in the Bible, but, but according to oral tradition, this, this curtain was four inches thick. So about the width of your four fingers, four inches thick. It was eight, about 80 feet tall. It was about 30 feet wide, meaning this curtain could not be torn by human hands. 
And when that curtain tore from top to bottom, when our Savior said, it is finished, the reason why it says top to bottom and not bottom to top is because the only one that could bridge the gap between your sin and mine, between a holy God, was God himself through Jesus Christ. He's the one that ripped the curtain. He ripped the curtain. So that no longer do I need to have someone intercede on my behalf. But because of the sacrifice of one, I can have a relationship with a holy God today. See, it's not the good that I can do that hopefully if I do good enough, I can have a relationship with God. No, no, no. It's the perfection of the one person who could make it possible, the Savior, Jesus Christ. See, here's the third characteristic of true love that's demonstrated. Number Three, true love is willing to sacrifice one's life for the good of another. See, I'd give my life for my wife. I'd give my life for my kids. But Jesus gave his life for Johnny Pereira, someone who had nothing to offer him. Nothing. He gave his life for you. Someone in and of yourself that had nothing inherently good about you that would motivate him to sacrifice his life. See, Romans 5, 7, and 8 says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Like you might find someone to die for a good person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But that's not what God did. What does it say? God demonstrated his love to us that in the midst of my sin, that's when Christ died for me. So you're struggling to love today? Struggling to love even when you look foolish? Or struggling to love even when you're experiencing pain? Or struggling to sacrifice something to demonstrate that love so that that relationship cannot be broken? I don't know what it is you do, though. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now on what that is. And I want every head bowed and every eye closed, and I want you to think about whatever that is. You may be here today, and you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You may have heard about what Jesus Christ has done for you many times, but you've never had a time in your life where you said, Lord, it's not the good that I'm doing. God, I've tried that. Let me put my full weight and trust in what you have accomplished for me. You can do that right now. You can call out to God in the quietness of your mind and say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I put my trust in what you did on the cross for me, and you can be saved. That's Romans 10. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead, I will be saved. That's your response today if you've never done that. But for those of us in this room who are followers of Jesus Christ, we've placed our trust, our full trust in him as our Savior. Who is it? What is it that's challenging you to display true love to someone else? Who is it or what is it that's challenging you to love the Lord the way that you know he's asking you to? All in. All in. There's no shortcuts to true love. There's no half in, half out. I'm all in. 
Let me read something over us before I pray this morning, and it's found in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, where the writer of Hebrews says this, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We all have a race. We all have a purpose in life. We're all to go hard after that purpose. But how do we run that race? We look to Jesus, the founder and protector of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Johnny, you don't know, I'm, I'm struggling to love in this way. You don't know this situation. Wait a minute, look at verse, listen to verse three. Consider him. Don't look to me, look to him. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Look to how Jesus loved. Ask the Holy Spirit for the power to do what you know in yourself you cannot do. And listen to this. Listen listen to what the writer says. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. It is hard to love like Jesus. I can't do it on my own and neither can you. And I grow so tired and so weary so many times when I'm tested to love this way. But what keeps me going is not me mustering it up in and of myself, but it's looking to Jesus. I look to that cross that is the greatest symbol of true love for me.